Bibles with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is, I, I, I mentioned it briefly this morning, but it does, I don't plan for the Sunday morning and Sunday night to um, go together. Like that's not in my planning. It's not that I'm against it or anything. I just don't, I don't think of it that way. So when the texts do go together, it's always, um, interesting, exciting, you know, to have that, that sense of resonance between the two. But looking at 1 Corinthians 2, so let, let's, let's pick this back up. What you win people with is what you win them to. What you win people with is what you win them to. Andrew Wilson talks about how youth and children's ministers know this maybe better than anyone else, right? If you provide enough games and sweets and sports and free pizza, attracting a crowd is easy. And that, that's fine. But if you win people with pizza, when the pizza goes away, so do the people. That, that doesn't mean you can't have fun, right, or, or give out free pizza. The, the question is what you're actually using to attract people. The same can be said for the attractional types of things or ministries that we do for adults or adult ministries also. If you win people to your church with an experience or with an event, when the experience goes away, when the event stops, so do they. But on the other hand, if what you win people with is Jesus Christ, the crowd will be smaller. It was for him. When, when you get outside of Acts, because you look at Acts, you say, yeah, but you had 3,000 people in one day and 5,000 people another day. Beloved, you never see that again. And that was in Jerusalem at the beginning of the church, and God was accompanying the gospel with signs and wonders, and you never see that level of numbers ever again. That's not normal. That was a very unique time in church history. So if what you win people with is just Jesus, the crowd will usually be a lot smaller. But the ones who come are much more likely to become disciples of Jesus. And that's actually the goal given to us by our Lord in the Great Commission, to make disciples. Let him worry about the size of the crowd. We're called to make disciples. The numerical growth of the church is God's prerogative. At the heart of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church here is a plea, a plea for them to stop trusting man's wisdom and stop craving man's approval and applause. At the heart of this church's many problems was a failure to trust the message of the cross of Jesus Christ as sufficient to do everything God commanded and expected the church to do. They didn't really believe that, at least not in practice. Every church in every age, including ours, faces the same, and we face it all the time. Every week. Every day. And here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul makes the statement that needs to shape our entire understanding of our identity as the church and what we've been called to as the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, specifically. Now, we say, every church says, right, that Christ is the center and the most important thing. But it can't become a cliche. It can't become assumed. Christ cannot become that. That, well, yeah, at the end of the day, Christ is the center of everything. It, it cannot go that direction because Christ is deliberately everything or He is nothing. He will suffer no other place but everything. We are not called Use this as comfort tonight. We are not called to win people to ourselves. We are not called to win people to our church, but to Christ. 
to Christ. And whether or not we actually believe that will come out in our preaching, our planning, our structure, our church government. Whether or not we believe that will come out in everything. Just the existence of the church in Corinth is proof, or anywhere else there is a church, just the existence of it is the proof of the sufficiency of the message of the cross, the gospel. This is the argument Paul took up, if you can remember back since we've missed a few Sunday nights in 126 and following. right? This is what he's been after. Paul said, he told them they had all been basically nothing. There was nothing about them that was great. There's nothing that, that's not why they were chosen. And so the fact that there was a church in Corinth at all was entirely of God who made them his own. In themselves, they bear witness to the power of God's wisdom in the preaching of the gospel of Christ crucified. Tonight, in order to make a very similar point, Paul will use himself now as the second example of all, all this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, as uh, David Garland writes. Though weak, fearful, and not coming to Corinth with the great rhetorical skills that many in Greek society might have expected, Paul's gospel proclamation demonstrated both God's Holy Spirit and the power of God in such a way that people came to faith. So in himself and in the fact that people have come to faith, Paul is offering further proof that God's wisdom prevails. If we just trust him, God's wisdom prevails over that of human beings. In this way, Paul concludes the section that began at 118, in which he's demonstrated how in the gospel, God has deliberately undermined the wisdom of this world. We can't use the wisdom of the world to build the church when God has undermined it with the gospel. He has shown that this has been achieved through Christ crucified, who is the content of the gospel. In this gospel, God's power and his wisdom have been revealed, and they stand in the sharpest possible contrast to the power and wisdom they were seeking at the church in Corinth. Everything God does, beloved, from the content of the message to the method of its delivery, is to undermine worldly wisdom and turn the expectations and conventions of it on its head so that we might have faith in Him and not in ourselves. Divine power to make disciples, divine power for the church to grow is not found in the skill or abilities of the preacher, but in God's prescribed method of simple proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you tonight for wisdom to understand your word, for humility to receive it and to do it, O oh God, to trust it as authoritative and sufficient and powerful as it is, for it is your word, Father, not the word of men. God, help me to preach it that way as though that's what it is, as though the power is in the text and not in me. So, God, help me, please, and help everyone who has come tonight. May their ears be open. May their hearts be open to receive the gospel. I don't believe they'd be here if that's not what they wanted. So, Lord, be with us all as we hear your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And here it is. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I need that on my skin. I need that on my body. I need to be reminded of that every single day. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is now the subject for consideration about this truth from God, rather than the Corinthians themselves, as they were all through the end of chapter 1. He reveals that he was also not chosen because he had tons of skill or talent or wisdom or abilities. So he didn't rely on any of that when he first came to Corinth with the gospel. That's what he's talking about, his first visit there from Acts 18. Paul begins this autobiographical illustration by speaking to the manner of his presentation of the gospel, how he did it, which is the testimony of God. He refused human conventions that were normal for good communication. He refused even the suggestion that he was there to promote himself. Nevertheless, he spoke God's word clearly as he proclaimed the gospel and spoke of Christ. The result of just that was that people came to faith, and as he will show, that was due to the power of God. Paul had no intention when he came to Corinth of giving out free pizza. So, again, he didn't come there to attract and do whatever it would take crowds, but he was well aware of the dangers of attracting people to the wrong thing. So he used wisdom from God. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's free pizza in Corinth. right? The nice delivery, the sharp, lofty speech. Paul didn't even display an impressive amount of self-confidence, which allegedly you have to have to be an effective preacher. Or so I've heard, right? In verse 3, what does he say? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Who wants to go listen to that? Particularly in places like Corinth, crowds in the ancient world were much more likely to gather around a rhetorically gifted, passionate speaker. In many ways, we still do. We we don't, if if we could create it or choose it, you, you don't want a fearful, trembling, weak pastor. You don't want that. Right? We want something impressive. But here's the thing. If people gather to impressive, if they gather to eloquence or wisdom, then when a more eloquent or educated person shows up, the crowd will disappear and it will go after them. If a church's reputation, then, beloved, is built on the preacher, when the preacher is gone, the church will deteriorate. So what does Paul say he would do As he enters ministry in Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The most unlikely message to be accepted and delivered by the most unimpressive agent that could be sent. This was his strategy in light of the fact that he was weak and fearful. I'm just, I'm going to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I don't have anything else to give. Paul was not only Christ-centered in the way he spoke or the words he used, but in his entire demeanor and message and delivery. His life was decisively settled on Christ. Here's the thing. Paul did not win people for Christ by impressing them. That wasn't even his strategy. right? He didn't win anybody to Jesus because he was an impressive person. And we seek that out. The people in Corinth wanted an impressive person. Preacher. They wanted their leaders to be thought highly of by the world. They wanted them to be uh, impressive and influential. Paul saw that as subversive, as cutting through the divine mandate. 
So he said, I'll know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. I'll literally say, look, this is all I have to give you. And I'm not a very good speaker either. I'm weak and I'm fearful. Right? And we're going to get into that later because he was literally afraid of this place and its people for good reason. Right? Seeking to be impressive, that was deadly. It would rob the gospel of its place at center stage and put Christ crucified for sinners on the back burner. He had no need to be impressive. And again, churches still generally will crave this out of their leaders, from their preachers in particular. Right? You want impressive up here. We use the word legacy. We want pastors to have one of those. Right? We want our pastors to be uh, home run hitters, attractional, charismatic, good personality, entrepreneurial, accomplished people. Now, pastors certainly shouldn't try to be dumb or unlearned or try to be unimpressive. That would be the same thing just on the other side, believing that that would be the method of winning people. But a pastor's goal for life and ministry is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, no matter what kind of man he is. That's the goal. That's the mark. That's the standard. The more impressive the man, that is at least the more his goal is to be thought of that way, the more likely it is that he will distract others from Christ and win them to himself. Now, let's take a step back for a minute. This is all very intriguing then when we talk about Paul in particular. One of the very confusing things about 1 Corinthians is that Paul will repeatedly insist, as he does here in verse 4, that he did not use eloquence or plausible words of wisdom. And yet, just in this letter alone, it's filled with some of the most powerful and eloquent rhetoric in the whole Bible. There's the intense sarcasm he's able to work with in chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. The way he shuts that down is amazing rhetoric. The lyrical beauty of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, people that don't know anything about God use that in their weddings. It's one of the most best-loved and most widely quoted pieces of ancient literature in the world today. Right, The love chapter, we call it. And sayings that we still use in the church 20 centuries later. The scum of the earth, 4.13. All things to all men, 9.22. Faith that moves mountains, 13.2. In the twinkling of an eye, 15.52. So it seems very strange in a letter packed with eloquence and wisdom that Paul would so strongly deny that he ever used eloquence and wisdom. So how do we explain his words here? How are we meant to understand what he's saying? For starters, clearly he didn't see it that way. Clearly he didn't realize at the time that that's what he was doing, that he spoke so well because that's not what he was trying to do. He was just talking. He was just being Paul. He didn't use big words or great arguments so people thought that he was a great speaker. Nor did he use those words to impress those that would like it in the Corinthian community. Pastors that make it their aim to be like that are subverting the centrality of Jesus. And every single one of us fights with this because we want to be the man. So do I, right? Absolutely. We want to be impressive. Pastors that make it their aim to be like that, however, they're subverting the centrality of Jesus and they're hurting. We hurt the exclusivity of this 
nothing but Christ and Him crucified attitude, perspective. So his point is not that using language well is bad or that he never does use good language. That's not his point. His point is that using language well is bad if you're doing it on purpose. If it detracts from or substitutes for the message of Christ crucified. If a pastor gets it in his mind, so this is a struggle for the pastor every Sunday. What will do the trick today is the way I talk, my ability to preach. That's what will hammer this home. I fight that. I think most pastors fight that, but I'm just, I just know I do every single time I get in the pulpit. Every single time. I rely, I, I am tempted to rely on how I speak as the way for you to hear me. And Paul is the exemplar of this, of, of the opposite of that here. There's nothing wrong with giving young people free pizza, right? If the entire event is focused on Jesus. Paul's priority is a demonstration of the Spirit's power in verse 4, not his own. Which in context, when he says that, it refers to the preaching of the cross. That's where the power of the Spirit will mainly be seen. Rather than the signs and wonders and wisdom that we know from 1 Corinthians 1, Greeks expect and Jews expect it, generally speaking. And that's what Corinth certainly, the Corinth is like, you need to impress us for us to like you, for us to come to your church, however you want to say it. This narrow focus. Think of how narrow that focus is that Paul is saying. Think of how singular that is. It's at the heart of his entire missionary strategy. And he's crystal clear as to why. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God in verse 5. That's the risk that you take if your aim is to be impressive. You can get a whole following to your name and who you are. But you're not winning people to Christ. They're not following because of Christ. They're following because of you. They're impressed with you. The pastor should fight against that and try not to be impressive. right? Not to be a bum, but not to be impressive. Like, I want you to think highly of me. No. No. You can't have that. You can't have this accomplished, amazing man standing here and Christ crucified at the same time. People's faith will rest in the wisdom of men if what you give them is the wisdom of men and not the power of God. It's the power of God that makes us the church, not the wisdom of men. If there is more focused on than Christ and Him crucified, faith will rest in the wisdom of men and not the power of God and will depend on and trust in preachers to bring growth and success to the church. Again, what you win people with is what you win them to. If the preacher tries to win people to himself, that's exactly what he'll do. This is what Paul is arguing against because in Corinth, they wanted this. Verse 3 again. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. If you would have met Paul when he came to Corinth to preach the gospel, he would have appeared weak and fearful to you. He would not have been impressive. He didn't put on airs. He wasn't full of self-confidence. That's... That's not what makes a preacher, right? 
Now again, let us check ourselves. Is that what we look for in those we are willing to listen to? Right? We have these ideas, like they did in Corinth, of what the pastor should be. They need to have presence, right? Everybody needs to know who they are. Paul had confidence in God and in the gospel message, but he knew that his style and personality, he knew. And again, he's not trying to be something. He's saying, this is who I am. He knew that his style and personality would not gather crowds, would not gather supporters. If he had those things, it was the power of God. And that's what the Corinthians were meant to see and to believe. Paul knew who he was. He knew who he was. What Paul is focusing on here is how weird it was, humanly speaking, that such an unimpressive man who didn't fulfill any of the conventions that might have drawn crowds was still involved in this very powerful ministry. There's a whole church in this pagan city. And it was started by him in Acts 18. The power truly was God's then. There's certainly no doubt that Paul was a great scholar. We know that as well as a good debater when needed. As he was, for example, in uh, at Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Acts 17, 19-34. Paul was smart and he could argue and he could debate and he could pull from Greek poetry. I mean, he... But you understand, he doesn't see himself as that. He doesn't even realize that's who he is. So he's not saying, I, instead of showing how smart I was, I decided to act weak. No, he is weak. He's fearful. He trembles. He doesn't have presence. He doesn't have any of those things. And God plants churches all over the world at this time through this man. And Paul is saying, how do you think that's happening? Don't crave impressive, accomplished leadership. Crave nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Because we see running throughout this whole section, 1 Corinthians 1.10 onward, that ends here in verse 5, Paul is saying something much deeper, and it, the text spells it out clearly. By the will of God, remember, Paul was called to be an apostle in chapter 1, verse 1. The content of what Paul preaches is a stumbling block and folly to people in 123. Those at Corinth who have come to faith mostly don't come from a background of high repute. We know that from the second half of chapter 1. And that's how it is with Paul. He's a fearful, unimpressive man. He doesn't speak with great eloquence in the Greek style. He'll get into that more in his letter later on because that's how his opponents in Corinth were trying to get the jump on him. This guy can't preach. Look at this guy. Look, look, look at his appearance. He's got scars all over him. He's probably hunched over at this point in his life a little bit. Look at this man. You want this to be what we model ourselves after? And Paul fights against this? Again, this, this is who he is. It's not just that he decides to appear like that to make a comparison with worldly wisdom. Paul knows that God has deliberately called him despite his many inadequacies, fears, failings, and weaknesses, to proclaim the gospel. And, and we like to think that when God calls us, he'll make us impressive. Beloved, no. You know that saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Fair enough. What does that mean when you look at someone like Paul? Who's the man that brought the gospel to the Gentile world? What's he like? 
How well liked was he in the community? How well known was he? How highly was he thought of? Not at all. They hated him. They teased him. They criticized him. They doubted him. They ignored him. And they killed him. What Paul has come to realize is that this is actually part of his calling. You will not be impressive. God has chosen a person like him in order that Christ crucified will be the one who is seen and heard rather than the messenger. Right? When we want to see evidence of God's calling, what do we look for? Accomplishments, skill, talent, all these things. God looks for none of these things. None of them. God is able to raise up rocks if he wants to to praise him. That's very good news to a preacher. Because that's all we are. We're just another rock. Right? I don't know that we have any biblical reason, or I do know that we don't have any biblical reason to ever think God calls any differently today. That in this free market of ideas and wisdom and all these things, that now what God needs is the heaviest hitter you can find. No, why not? Why do we know that's not the case? Because the Bible doesn't tell us that, but also because Christ and Him crucified is still the only thing worth knowing. And that will never catch traction in the world. In fact, if you try to dress it up with an impressive person, you'll probably cover it up and do harm to it. There are much more impressive men than me out there, beloved. You have to know this. You have to know this. God doesn't need that. Thank God, or I wouldn't be here. When Paul talks about being with them in fear and much trembling, we can be sure that demeanor, just that demeanor would have been a huge contrast with the self-presentation of Greek teachers. They didn't appear weak and fearful. But that doesn't really explain here the nature of his fear or its overall gospel impact, right? More so than Paul being fearful and trembling because he has such a weighty message, right? Which is probably the case too, but that's not really, that's not really the point Paul is making about his own reverence for the message, and so he was fearful about it. Luke's account of Paul's first visit to Corinth gives you a much more likely reason for reading this phrase in verse 3 very straightforwardly as referring to actual, genuine fear. Luke makes it clear that Paul found that first visit to Corinth to be extremely difficult. It was a very hard time in Paul's life. He was opposed and reviled there in Acts 18.6. Right? Why, why would we expect it? Why do we try not to be opposed and reviled? You're, if you're focusing on nothing but Christ and Him crucified, nobody's going to be impressed with you. He was opposed and reviled, Acts 18.6. He left the synagogue. He finally said, never mind, forget it, verse 7. Clearly, Paul was physically afraid, and with good reason. The Jews made a united attack on him and dragged him to court in verse 12. Being threatened with legal action is not fun when you're a pastor. It's terrifying. I speak from experience here. We were going to remove, we did remove a ministry leader in our church in California because he needed to be removed. He was unrepentant about some very serious sins for a pastor. And he threatened legal action. We had to get a lawyer on retainer and bring them in and talk to us and help us through it. It stinks. 
It, you can't sleep. It knocks years off your life. It stinks. Sosthenes, that Paul mentioned in the opening, he was also caught and beaten, by the way, in verse 17 of Acts 18. But most indicative of the fact that this is real fear is the fact that uniquely at Corinth, as far as we know, uniquely at Corinth, God had to intervene with a vision for Paul in which he specifically addressed the fear that men might attack and harm him in Acts 18, 9, and 10. That's where the Lord tells him, go on preaching. Go on preaching. I have many people in this city. So Paul pulls together all the evidence he can from what the Corinthians will remember of him from the time when he first came to them. This is a, an additional visit here. For this letter, he was truly fearful, he was physically weak, but he also didn't fit the standards of a traveling philosopher or speaker. By way of comparison with those who did depend on such devices then, Paul did appear very weak. Again, it's not that he deliberately dumbed down the gospel so uh, so much as he didn't hide behind uh, unnecessary words or pretentious presentations of it. it, it in verse 4 here, Paul insists that although some Corinthians might want Paul to rely or in his proclamation on his grand oratory skills or his persuasive rhetorical power because that's what they responded to, it is in fact demonstrated or proved that Paul speaks the truth through the work of the Holy Spirit and in the power of God since it's this that has resulted in the changed lives of these Corinthians themselves. He's trying to convince these people that were saved when he preached the gospel to stop wanting something more from him or from any leader that they would have or to rely on wisdom. He's saying, my great presentation didn't save you. It wasn't a great presentation. It wasn't an impressive sermon. It wasn't any of those things that got you to believe. Why do you want that now to keep being the church? Verse, he... um, Their faith becomes the proof that the Spirit of God is at work in power when the gospel is preached in non-powerful ways by unimpressive people. Faith itself is a product of the power of God, not the skill or the attractiveness of the preacher. You hear me say today that sometimes preachers like a quarterback, right? You get way too much credit when it goes well, way too much blame when it goes bad. That's the thing here. I don't want to know numbers. I don't want to know any numbers. Of, of the years I've been a pastor. I don't want to know a single number. I don't want to rely on any of it. Right? You, faith is the product of the power of God. It's not the skill, the uh, attractiveness or anything like that of the preacher that saves people. It doesn't even help. It'll get in the way if you make it a thing. You can preach in such a way that people respond to you and not to Christ. We preachers have to be careful, right? This is not our show. We have to be careful, and it has to be deliberate. So I know things about, I'm 48 now, I know some things about the way that I am. I am also very tempted by what I see around me or what I read in books or see in magazines or social media of more attractive preachers than myself, more successful preachers than myself. I'm tempted by that. I long to be more like what they are. I see guys that have... All this self-confidence, I think I, I would love to have that. I see guys that don't struggle with mental things. I see all that. I think I want to be like that. And yet what I'm, when I read Paul, it, it, it's as though the Spirit is 
teaching me here, helping me to see, I hope, that like, look, I need you to be you and preach the gospel. Not, I need you to be unrepentant about your sin. No, 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 no. That's an excuse. But just, I hope, I hope that's what the lesson is for me. Right? I just, just don't try to be somebody else. Just be you. Right? Now again, that's, if you're, if you're in my church, you think, well, maybe you think, well, you know, I would like you to be more like this. And trust me, I feel it too. But I think the effectiveness comes from embracing who you are, whether you're a preacher or not. Like don't, you don't need to be somebody else. You don't. Right? Again, I'm not saying we don't want to improve or mature. No, of course we do. I'm saying don't think God is waiting on you to become somebody else. Apparently, weak, filled with much trembling, the power of God is at work in such things. So just, we trust Him, right? That expression He uses with words of eloquent wisdom back in verse 17 summarizes the whole way that humanity might want to see a preacher or philosopher behaving and speaking with the wisdom the Greeks are said to seek, or maybe you know, something miraculous and attractive like the signs and evidences the Jews seek in 122, lofty speech and wisdom in verse 4. But we aren't the show. It's not our show. Right? The fact that Paul has presented himself and his message in this way can't be separated from God's purpose in choosing Paul and in giving him this message to proclaim in this way. Verse 5, so that. So there's a deliberate reason for this, that this is God's way. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Bible is making a very bold claim here. That if you rely on lofty speech and wisdom, if you try to be impressive, all this, people's faith will rest in you. It'll rest in worldly wisdom, human wisdom, and there's no foundation there. You've won them with free pizza. And when the pizza goes away, they go away. So the crowds will be smaller. Right? Generally speaking, the crowds will be smaller. The acclaim will be less. But God will be there. Jesus is there building His church. As Paul draws this personal example to an end, notice what he does here. He brings everything back to God and His power. Paul was a living example of how God is involved at every stage in drawing people to himself. The, the best of clever argumentation, that might draw some to the preacher, not to Jesus Christ. Paul shows that a message that's folly to many and a stumbling block to others is also presented in a manner that reflects that message. It's empty of rhetorical flourishes and sophistication and powerful signs. It doesn't rely on the impressive nature of the man at all. The messenger himself is weak and fearful as, as the gospel appears to the world. Given that the content of the message, the way in which it's communicated, and the person doing the communication will not be well regarded in the eyes of the world, and they aren't supposed to be, then the results of his initial visit to the city in verse 1, as successful as it was, can only be attributed to the power of God and the working of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul didn't win people for Christ by impressing them as we like to be impressed or impressed. So the preacher's goal is not to be impressive. 
It's to never seek to overshadow the foolishness of the message with my own aspirations and dreams. Right? Preachers have to embrace their weaknesses and not pretend they don't have them. That's so harmful to a church, to people, especially in the ebb and flow of everyday life. If I present myself as this high achiever that you could be if you were as serious about God as I am, as though I don't struggle with things or have weaknesses or... Beloved, I do. I do. Right? Like real everyday ones like you have. We have to embrace our weaknesses, not pretend we don't have them. One of the primary issues in the Corinthian church, in fact, it's foundational as the issue, the heart of the problem, given where Paul places this concern in the letter, is that the Corinthians didn't want unimpressive preachers who didn't have dreams of glory. They didn't want that. They wanted leaders who by looking good would make them look good. And Paul is saying, you've got to choose a different route if you want the growth to come from God. They wanted more than Christ crucified. And Paul says it's nothing but Christ and Him crucified that had brought about and now sustained their existence. And listen, not only is that true, but the church has to also embrace the fact that God doesn't need someone powerful and clever to achieve His ends with the Gospel. He doesn't need entrepreneurial types. That personality, that type A, driven, you can be like that and be a preacher, but you don't have to be. Social butterflies, pillars of the community, that's important for the, that's impressive to the community. He needs people who are servants of Christ and who model humility and frailty as they preach of one who was despised and rejected and who suffered even death on a cross. What made Paul like this? Paul was brilliant. Make no mistake. He just didn't realize it. He was brilliant. To be able to just rip off and argue with philosophers at Mars Hill is an amazing thing. Right? That's like, that's the equivalent today of walking into Harvard and just cleaning house. The best atheists, the best philosophers today. It's just walking into their domain and making them look like fools. Paul could do it without a second thought. They are fools, right? But not to the world. No. They're geniuses to the world. They have it together to the world. Right? What made Paul embrace this about himself? He was obsessed with Jesus Christ. That's it. Right? Again, Paul didn't have superpowers. Paul was obsessed with Jesus Christ. We might be tempted to think it was hyperbole in verse 2. Right? For I, de- I, desire to know, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, but there, there's a lot more, Paul. That sounds nice, but you know we know there's so much more to talk about. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. It's just, it's just, it's just funny. Like, like we, we all want to take the Bible so literally, right? And, and most of the time you should, and we want words to matter until if they matter, they mess with our system. Right? So what do you think nothing means in Greek? Nothing. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
See, we, we think that there's actually more than that because we don't realize how much we need Christ yet. I know the Bible talks about more than Christ has been crucified. So did Paul. So what is he doing here? It's a dose of reality. Paul's saying, I could have gotten up and lectured you on law and behavior and duties and all these things. No. No, the, the, nothing but Christ and Him crucified. This is the same guy that said his conscience was clean to the elders in Miletus of Ephesus because he had preached to them the whole counsel of God. Apparently, Christ crucified is the summary statement of the whole counsel of God. It just, it, it ought to blow our minds that people want so badly to be told what to do. More than they want to hear Christ crucified. It, it is not good in us that what we desire are lists and guidelines rather than just Christ crucified. We don't believe Christ crucified will produce good fruit. So we want more than that. You've got to give them, we can't just talk about Jesus all the time. You can take a hike. We talk about Jesus all the time. No apologies. Nothing is changing. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Period. So when you read a text like that, what is your level of self-confidence tonight? Why might you think you're capable of doing anything the New Testament commands you to do? We haven't reckoned yet with the weight of glory, beloved. That's why we need nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified cannot be the assumed thing about us. It can't be the unspoken thing about our faith. The rules ought to be that, if anything ought to be that. Because we need Christ crucified more than we need those. We really do. Paul knew that Christ and Him crucified would produce just the kind of Christian God wanted there to be. Read Galatians, if you don't believe me. Read Colossians in particular to see that. Too many of us preachers, we end up obsessing about ourselves and so we get disheartened that we don't live as well as other preachers do or that they that we haven't seen the success other preachers have. That's hard. We struggle with this. Don't feel sorry for us. It's not the point of me saying it. No matter how much I struggle... I don't have to go down into a mine, right? I take that very seriously because I, I think I'd flip out if you sent me a couple miles beneath the surface. I'm never going to know the pain of my back from being in a mine, right? I'm never, I'm never going to have, as far as I know, battle scars on me from fighting, right? I'm never going to have PTSD from having seen horrible things in a war. So I don't, I don't mean like being a preacher is just so, it's uniquely hard on its own. It has its own unique issues, right? But that's one of the hard things. You just, you're always comparing yourself. And sometimes, like, you, you see some preaching basically what is just moralistic therapeutic deism. Moral therapy with God and the Bible thrown in somehow. And their churches grow by leaps and bounds. And then you, you, you try to preach justification by faith alone and you see the numbers shrink. Right? It's like, like, that's hard. Many of us preachers become preoccupied with being well thought of. We obsess about the numbers each Sunday. And, and congregations can, they, they, they don't automatically, but they can play right into that. 
looking at us sideways when the numbers dwindle, right? Wondering what are you doing? What are you not doing? Like it's like like if you stepped it up, we would be successful. You know, there and the preacher most of the time does need to step it up. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's weird. It's difficult. Paul said, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel in 9.16. Woe to me. Condemnation on me if I don't preach the gospel. He's talking about preaching to Christians. To the saved. And he obsessed about Christ and his calling from God. Look at the thought that goes into it from Paul. Surely Christ first and Christ last should be the objective of, objective of all called by God and seeking to proclaim the gospel. Divine power to make disciples, to grow the church, is not found in the skill or ability of the preacher. It's found in God's prescribed method of simple proclamation. Preach Christ crucified. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We have to be determined as pastor and as congregation to know nothing among us but Christ and Him crucified. If we make that the aim, we'll know plenty of what we need to know about. Just Jesus for us, beloved, is more than enough. All the power, all the glory, it's all in Him who was crucified on a tree by the world and who God raised from the dead. That is your Savior. That is the message you have in you to proclaim everywhere you go. You, you are not unqualified to proclaim Christ. It doesn't matter what baggage you carry. And repent of your sin. Long for the holiness of God. Absolutely. Just understand, God could snap His fingers and you would be everything you think you need to be. And He hasn't done it. So just be who you are. Right? Under the umbrella of the Gospel. If you're a serial killer, stop being that. Right? Because the world, when the world says that, just be who you are, it's pure insanity. What if I'm a, a Christian? No, I don't be that. Right? No, in light of Christ, you, you, you don't need to step it up. You need to kneel. Christ will work through you. Do not be afraid. He's promised to do it. He's going to do this. It, it is often our presumption and pretense that hurts our witness, not our failures and failings. They don't need to think that being a Christian means you never mess up. Because they're going to mess up. And then they're going to think, well, that's not for me. I can't get it together. Show them. Don't try and fail in front of them. Embrace the fact that you will mess it up sometimes. Don't throw in the towel. Don't. By the grace of God, we are what we are, beloved. Jesus is enough. Because Jesus is everything. So let us determine, pastor and congregation, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified for you.